You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, I'm Greg LeBlanc, and this is Unsiloed. And with me today is Ben Weber, who is visiting scientist at MIT Media Labs and also the president and co-founder of Humanize, which is a company that helps companies figure out what the heck is going on inside the workforce. I should have mentioned also the book People Analytics, which came out in 2013, which is super, super relevant still today. So Ben, in the book, you talk about how organizations and why organizations exist, and they exist in order to bring people together to collaborate and to produce things together, develop interdependencies, and to facilitate communication with one another. Most of modern history, the managers didn't really necessarily understand what was going on inside the company, right? So we'd set up these formal org charts, we would set up these formal lines of communication, we would set up these formal teams, and all of this would be on paper. But what happened in, in reality was sort of something of a mystery, at least in, until now. So what is this big fundamental change which is happening in, in the workplace now and what has helped to facilitate this? I mean, I think of it as a branch of social science and I think that social science is also being transformed by these new technologies. To your point, I think what's changed is that for the past couple of decades, we've been using technologies as part of our work that generate this digital exhaust about how work happens. And of course, there's simple things about how people spend time from calendars, from just other programs you use on your computer. But obviously what I'm more interested in and what I think is much more relevant when you think about organizational performance at a macro level, not an individual level, but really what do we do as groups, as teams, as divisions, as companies? It's really about the patterns of communication between people, between teams, how those evolve over time, and really the structure of how people collaborate. And that that is something that now is very, very easy to understand and to see. But to your point, the challenge, of course, is that for decades, well over 100 years, we go to more modern organizational theory and management. We've been thinking about how work happens in these org charts and these very formal processes. And I, I don't want to downplay those. Those are still important. Like they still matter. But that the bulk of how work happens are, to your point, these more informal networks and these collaboration patterns and these changes. And that not just in the digital world, but also in the physical world with more sensors, with other things that can help us understand face-to-face interaction, we can just understand at an unprecedented level of detail what's going on. What that means is not just that we have a better idea about what's happening, but that we can also then start to really test the decisions we make. And we can, of course, obviously, ideally make better decisions, but we're still, I'd say, very much in the early phases of that, where there's still just this only growing awareness that this is possible, that the vast majority of people who lead at least large organizations today, they came up through management where the way that you managed was you went on your gut instinct, how do you feel about certain things, and that when you make a decision, it's the right decision, which is, of course, a complete fallacy. Like, it's a guess, it's a hypothesis, but that there's this idea that you just couldn't possibly know in a reasonable period of time what the impact of a change was, whether it's a reorg, whether it's a new training program. And now that's no longer the case. So I think we're still very much educating and training up those people who've been there for a long time. But of course, there is now this much newer class of folks 
coming through organizations that are more used to making data-driven decisions, that are starting to inject hard numbers into these decisions that shouldn't only be based on hard numbers, but where that undeniably has to be a core part of a lot of these decisions. And that's why it's sort of really exciting right now, because we're really just at the cusp of this starting to take off. I think ever since Frederick Taylor, managers have thought of themselves as being somewhat scientific, right? I mean, we have this term scientific management. It typically is applied on the factory floor. It's usually not applied in the managerial environment, or at least in the ideas part of the organization historically. But like any kind of science, it's limited by its techniques. And you mentioned at the very beginning of people analytics that the natural sciences have been transformed dramatically by our ability to go out and capture more data. But the social sciences have been, you know, all of these models that we've developed have been built more or less on small-scale observations in the lab or through surveys. And I think still today, a lot of the companies that call themselves HR analytics companies are really kind of glorified survey companies where they send out surveys to people to measure engagement and, and so forth. And economists are very skeptical of both kind of small-scale observations and also expressed preferences as opposed to revealed preferences. So how has social science changed through greater data capture? And how is this kind of flowing back into what we might think of as management science? In general, when you think about organizations specifically, again, I mentioned we, of course, use things like email and chat tools internally that help give you this sense of where in the past I would give you a survey, like, tell me, who do you talk to? And people are pretty bad at recalling even yesterday. Who did you talk to yesterday? And people are terrible. We're about like 30% accurate on that. It's kind of like Nielsen data, right? When people would be asked, what television shows did you watch last week? I mean, nobody remembers, especially when you're doing channel surfing, right? How are you going to remember? Exactly. And maybe you're not going to admit, you know, you're actually a huge fan of, I don't know, Grey's Anatomy or something. Anyway, so this gets to your revealed preferences versus what you say you do. I will say, I don't think that survey data is useless. I think there is very much a place into understanding how people feel. I do think that's critical, but I'd argue it's equally probably more critical to understand, well, what actually happens in the real world? And that for the social sciences, this, of course, also gets to things like cell phone networks, gets to things like data from Facebook, from Twitter, really extremely large data sets that look at the flows of relationships, right? So within organizations, in some ways, it's easier because you know the context of those relationships. These are work relationships. And of course, some of them can be informal. You can have friends at work, but they're centered around an organization. Whereas if I look at, say, cell phone data, which has been done going back to the early 2000s, was a lot of the early work done in that area to show that you could use patterns in cell phone networks of like who calls who to predict things like depression levels in different areas. You could look at even economic growth. It was quite interesting. You could predict GDP growth over the next couple of years by looking at changes in networks. But the predictive power there, it was compared to survey data in past extremely high, but compared to what we can do in organizations, an order of magnitude lower. If you look at within a company, if I look at the structure of a team's network, you can predict things like attrition, you know, about 40% of the variance are higher in some cases. In the social sciences, for those of you folks listening who are familiar with it, that's like God's truth, getting like 40% of the variance. That's, that is unheard of. But that you see this really step change in predictive power when looking at this kind of data. But I do think that a lot of the methods and perspectives on this data were developed from survey data. And even a lot of the early research we did back at MIT, we were really just replicating survey results because we wanted to make sure we weren't doing something 
completely crazy because you had so much more data. Can you at least show that the same things that seemed to be predictive before are also predictive? And you can do that. The challenge, of course, is those methods were developed on static data on like, I get one snapshot from a survey of you every year versus your communication patterns, how you work, how you spend time. I mean, those change daily. We really still, frankly, are at the early stages of developing standard metrics around those sort of things. Like at my company, Humanize, we've developed some, but we're very, very cautious because we want to validate these things. Because of course, there's so many ways you can slice this data that are going to be predictive, but ultimately you want to make sure they're real and not just a spurious correlation. I mean, the other thing that I'll point out is people always bring up scientific management. I feel like everyone's legally obligated to bring up the concept of scientific management. The original conception of it, again, it's fundamentally about time tracking. How do people spend time? Can we make it more efficient at a basic level? And I would say it's fundamentally misguided, but that that is actually, I think, spread to how a lot of companies are thinking about people analytics and workplace analytics today is around how do people spend time? It's not unimportant, but again, so even imagine factory floor, because people bring that up, hey, that's a really quantified environment. It should matter how people spend time, and it, and it does. But now imagine that you're a factory floor worker and that I want you to produce 10 widgets an hour. Now, maybe you figure out a better way to produce those widgets so that you can do 11 widgets an hour. Now, if you spend an hour of your day helping your coworkers learn that new method, your individual performance will go down, right? So you'll go to nine. And so a dumb algorithm which lots of companies are doing this exact thing, would say, hey, your productivity is down, you're fired. Versus what they care about. What do they care about? Well, actually spending that hour dramatically improves the performance of everybody at the company. So you want that. And this is why I really think that this individual focus of a lot of these technologies are fundamentally misguided because really the value of organizations, again, it's people coming together to do things they couldn't do themselves. And of course, ultimately, you have to pay individuals, you have to make individual personnel decisions. But I would argue that a lot of the ways we've been doing that before are not fundamentally broken. There is, of course, things that can be improved. But I don't believe the answer to that is, hey, let's just super micromanage people with data. I believe that there's so many holes in that. Like in a simple example I just said, beyond not even looking at, I see you're stressed, I'm going to spend an hour with you chilling you out so that you don't leave the company, that's worth stuff to the company. There's all these examples like that you could go through. And so looking at things in an aggregate, I think, gives you a much better perspective on what really matters to the company. It avoids a lot of these privacy and ethical issues that I think come up. And I really hope that that is where the field goes. I think some regulation will also come in to push it that way as well. But I do think that's important to just get out there as well. Oh, isn't that just part of the natural evolution? I mean, if you think about what Billy Bean was doing with the Oakland A's, right? He was trying initially to track individual performance. And this is relatively easy in baseball where you have an isolated interaction between a pitcher and a batter. And so you can recruit for people that have these individual characteristics. But it's taken a lot longer for this analytics to take over in in sports that are more team-oriented, like soccer, where the best player on the field might not ever score a goal. And so it's not that analytics is useless. It's just that you have to be a lot more clever about what you're trying to measure, right? And that'll come with time. I think we're starting to see it now. Even Billy Bean has a partial stake in a soccer team, right? That's right. I think that probably basketball is the best analogy for a lot of organizations because it's one of these things where you can look at certain players on paper and if you just put them together, the team can be terrible. And this happened many, many times. And you look at folks like Daryl Morey, who I'd say is obviously the bleeding edge of this in the basketball world. And him and his teams have used analytics as a core part of the decision-making, but that is not the only part. 
that they use a subjective understanding of here's how we think these people fit together. And it's really this holistic way of making decisions. And I think that this is where for people analytics or workplace analytics, I do really feel like that's the approach that's necessary, right? It's that these numbers alone certainly help focus your attention on things, but you're invariably not going to get the whole picture, even understanding this real huge depth of insight into how work is happening. Like what you can do now is say, hey, here's some team that's super overworked. Or that again, we talk about the remote work environment today. These are the teams that appear to be most impacted in terms of how they collaborate, right? But it doesn't tell you why those are happening. And so that's where the subjective qualitative side comes in and says, okay, well, actually it turns out that we've got some huge supply chain issues. So this team is doing something super differently than they were before. Totally makes sense. This team actually, it is concerning because they should be doing the same thing. No algorithm is ever going to figure that out. I think it's the moving towards that combination that is just going to be incredibly powerful in the nearer term. In the longer term, then I think I get really excited about running lots of experiments across especially large organizations. We are simultaneously trying out many different things. I think the experience of the pandemic has probably pushed us closer to that than I would have thought even obviously a couple of years ago with the rapid experimentation with how people work. I do think that that future is maybe a lot closer than a lot of us think in terms of if we think about the transition that marketing went through a couple of decades ago, moving to this very data-driven model and now being very experimental. I think the people side of organizations is going to be moving there within the next decade, which is, I think, if you'd asked me two years ago, I would have said, ah, it's probably going to take like 20, 30 years. Now, I think there are some companies that are already getting there and they're early, but that that's very, very exciting. And I think a very good use of the technology. Yeah, like you, I'm pretty optimistic. I think of what you're saying as gut-level decision-making. I think of that just as a feature engineering problem, figuring out exactly what it is that you're measuring and making it a little bit more explicit and just having better data on what you're doing. But I want to circle back to this analogy that you have with marketing. A lot of companies now have, whether we call them people operations groups like at, at Google or people analytics group or HR analytics. And as you mentioned, they're kind of modeled on what's happened in marketing. And some companies even rotate people between the marketing and the HR functions. I know Salesforce and, and Adobe and, and some others, and they think about customer acquisition and customer lifetime value applying to employees, employee acquisition cost, employee lifetime value, and that sort of thing. And just like marketing, I think that the initial efforts were devoted to the things that were relatively easy, like conversion. And so most of these folks who have HR analytics departments, they're primarily, I think, initially focused on more on recruiting. So a good friend of mine started a company that did recruiting analytics for call centers. And you talk a lot about call centers. Call centers are like the fruit flies of people analytics, but that's relatively easy. Like, okay, hire these people, don't hire these people and accept the workplace as given. But once you've optimized that problem, then it really is, okay, now let's get into the workplace and start manipulating the workplace. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the workplace, and there's a couple elements here. You talk a lot about the physical environment, which maybe we'll get to, but initially let's talk about communication networks. How has the science of networks helped us to rethink how people do work? When we think about networks, it's very difficult, I'd say, for individuals to have perspectives on how networks function, because really this gets beyond what you can immediately see. It gets to what is the structure of groups that are many levels out from you. But a good way to think about it is imagine you can think of even a single team. A team could very be tightly knit or it could be much more exploratory in that maybe there's lots of communication within the team and very little without, or it could be the opposite as a simple example. Depending on what work people are doing, one of those could be more effective than the other. 
if you are a team or a group of teams together, if you're a group of teams that is trying to execute some well-defined project where you know what the dependencies are, then having either cohesion within teams or having the interaction between teams match what those technical dependencies are. That's the most important thing for actually attaining those milestones. On the other hand, if you're tasked with coming up with new ideas, building new products, doing something no one's ever done before, then actually that's going to be very ineffective, right? And it's going to be much more important to be exploratory. And what network science allows you to do is quantify those differences. I mean, at this point, Humanize has gotten very exciting over the last, actually, it was about a year and a half ago. We got to a point where as we were getting new data from existing customers or onboarding new customers, our distributions of network metrics across this global data set didn't change or barely moved, which is very, very exciting because it means that you have this representative data set of knowledge workers at large companies, at least, because that's who we work with. And so what that means is that we can essentially automatically flag really weird things. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're good or bad, because as I just said, the context does matter. But there are certain things where the context doesn't matter. When you get really far out on some of these network metrics, like I don't really care the kind of work you do. But if, for example, if I look at cross-level collaboration, I can look at layering on top of these networks, you layer hierarchy information. And imagine that you show that, okay, I know what the distribution of that looks like globally, and that this team or this company, they're way out on the end. Literally, the executive team only spends 1% of their time with this whole division. I don't care what they do. That's a problem. And there are certain things like that that you can automatically figure out. But what you see is that the structure of these networks is not just for simple examples like that, but that they are in knowledge organizations, knowledge intensive organizations. So you talk about technology, finance, pharmaceuticals. I mean, increasingly, the majority of the work that gets done in society, the structure of these networks, whether they're tightly knit, whether there are lots of loose connections between disparate parts of the organization, are the biggest predictor of the outcomes that companies care about attrition, performance, milestone attainment, stock performance, all these things. Now, to your point about people analytics teams, I think these are longer term outcomes, right? So to show the relationship, for example, between network changes and attrition, you'll need a couple quarters to show that versus if you're a large organization, I can show from say, I have people do some sort of assessment on their application. And then I can relate that to attrition. Well, you can probably actually do that pretty quickly in the span of weeks. It's not to say it's unimportant, but that you're like, okay, what can you do? You can probably reduce attrition by 5%, which is meaningful, totally meaningful. But that when you're looking at, I change a network in a certain way, you're talking about increases to top line performance, sales, other things like that, that are 10, 20%. I got examples in the book. There's other great examples. I mean, even like literally earlier this week, paper out of University of Chicago showing changes in network in networks that came through to working from home during the pandemic led to a 20% performance drop and a hard number too, not abstract. Like people say they're more productive. No, no, no. These are hard numbers. And so that's crazy. Like that's an order of magnitude difference, but that utilizing it requires a very different set of management skills for HR analytics or rebranded teams like that. It's okay. We've been doing recruiting. I now do the exact same process, but I'm able to apply some algorithm to it, to do it better. And it is totally valuable to do that. But then again, inherently limiting. And the thing I get worried about is that for divisions that start in that area, like if that's what you start doing, I think it's going to be very hard for them to move to these more strategic discussions of, okay, I actually need what I see is a really concerning pattern that we're extremely siloed and I need these particular teams to work more with each other. If you're doing recruiting, they're not responsible for that. Even a lot of times the head of HR or CHRO is not even responsible for that. That goes to the CEO, the COO. 
And so you worry about that structure that they'll be pigeonholed into doing things that are traditionally considered the province of recruiting retention. It is valuable, but it is a fraction of the overall value of this kind of technology, which fundamentally comes about at the network level because it's about changing the collaboration patterns within and across teams. Well, you mentioned a lot about cohesion, and I was wondering if you could talk about how important cohesion is. And sometimes we talk about cohesion as it's kind of obvious when you're doing group work, but you talk also about the importance of cohesion even when the task is one that is primarily solitary, right? So if you're a call center employee, I mean, this is really an individual task. In fact, it's something that we often now, even before the pandemic, would have people do from their homes. Coding, a lot of times people think of it as primarily a solitary activity for, for some pieces of the code. But you emphasize that cohesion is an extremely important measure and has all sorts of predictive validity. So what is cohesion? How do we measure it? And what is the upside of cohesion? Yeah. I mean, the way to think about cohesion in a network context is imagine, think about who you talk to, but then think about how much do those people talk to each other? So the extent that there are people you spend a lot of time with that also spend a lot of time with each other, that that means you have a more cohesive network. Now, as you think about this, you can imagine that as you have a larger and larger network, it actually gets harder and harder to maintain cohesion, right? Because you have more and more people you spend more and more time with. The thing is, is that this metric not just at an individual level, but especially at a team level, is related to all sorts of outcomes like, as you can imagine, retention. If you're in a very densely knit network, you're less likely to leave because you have strong relationships with a lot of people. To the extent that decreases over time, of course, you're more likely to leave. When you look at productivity metrics around execution of tasks, even at the individual level, to your point, that tends to be highly correlated with cohesion. And the reasoning behind that, or like why that might be, is that even in call centers, we're doing actually fairly complex work, but that oftentimes we're rewarded for our individual behaviors rather than a group level. Take call center example. Imagine I learn how to solve a particularly complex problem for a customer, and I can solve it, say, in five minutes where it normally took me an hour. I'm actually probably compared to my coworkers in terms of who's going to get a bonus, who's going to be promoted. A lot of call centers, it's top X percent of employees get a promotion, get a bonus. Which means that from a very selfish perspective, I actually shouldn't tell you how I did that because it'll take me time, which hurts my metrics as we just talked about, but also then you'll look better compared to me. But if we're in this tight-knit network, those networks, and there's decades of research on this relate to trust as well. You tend to trust people you're in these dense networks with. And the reason is that if I share this with you, but then you learn something later and don't share with me, well, I'm going to learn that and then we're going to cut you out in the future. And so it's less likely to happen in these groups. And so what that means is that if you're in this group, you're probably going to be more productive, even on these seemingly individual tasks. In addition, these help reduce stress. So if you're in a stressful task where like call centers are extremely stressful, this is going to be extremely helpful. And I think that's the way to to really think about cohesion. It's very, very good for those things. The downside is that if it gets too strong, this can lead to groupthink. You want a more moderate level of it. And so again, if you're in an R&D group, for example, cohesion isn't necessarily going to be good because, yeah, it's still good to have a group of people to commiserate with. But if you spend your time with nine people and they only spend time with each other, that's not good. Again, this though gets to the interesting point that individuals don't have good perspective on this because I could talk to nine people and especially think about the, the pandemic is a great example because maybe in person, if we're in the office, I could see that Bob and Ann do talk to each other by the coffee machine. But today, maybe I have a meeting with you and a meeting with someone else and a meeting with someone else. And I don't actually know if you all talk to each other. And so I could ask your opinion on something 
and ask everyone else that I talk to and think of getting three different opinions with actually just one opinion because you always talk to each other all the time. And so this is really where bigger, bigger scales data really becomes necessary to show the impact of these things because it's so hard for people to see those changes. And not just with cohesion, but if you look at things like centrality, other metrics that try to capture how connected different parts of the organization are, a lot of what drives that are very short, ephemeral interactions. You know, so when you talk to the coffee machine for five minutes every two weeks, or, you know, even on things like Slack, yeah, I send up a couple Slack messages a week. If that goes from three messages to one, you're not going to notice that. But that actually could dramatically affect the speed of information flow. So for all these things, really that perspective of the data is a helpful complement to this perspective of individuals on how their work is happening as well. I think of you, Ben, as the water cooler guy. <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm like, oh, that's what the water cooler guy would say, because you, you emphasize how important these encounters are. And so I think one point you're making is that there is a trade-off between cohesion and what you call diversity in network theory. And so the shape of your network, are you interacting with the people who interact with each other in a dense way? Or are you kind of branching out and dealing with people that don't necessarily interact with, with others in a dense way? And as an economist, I think of there being like this frontier. And that means there's a trade-off. And you can't be both at the same time, right? You got to be one or the other if you're on that frontier. And so... Presumably, some organizations or some functions within organizations or some groups within organizations, you want them to have more cohesion and others, you want them to have more diversity. So which type of network is best suited for which types of work? This is where we get into generalities, which I I always get cautious about this because there are always tons of exceptions. And so I always advocate that you should use your own data to help make these decisions. So this is my warning about everything I'm going to say after this, because I do do actually think you should use your own data and and that use your own context to make these decisions. However, that being said, in general, when you have work that is more either high stress or has an extremely complex language and it needs extremely tight coordination in projects, so things that where, again, it's just, there's an extreme amount of tacit knowledge transfer that's necessary, so not explicit. It's not something you can write an email. Like you really need to deeply understand a topic Cohesion is very good for that or for those things where there's a lot of risk involved in something. Cohesion is very good because I need to trust you that we're doing certain things. And again, when it's a well-defined technical project with lots of dependencies and cohesion and at least communication patterns matching those dependencies is critical for success there. On the other hand, when you're looking at much more creative tasks, when you're looking at even just idea generation phases of some of those things I just talked about, that's really where you want more exploration, you want more diversity in your networks. And again, when we say diversity here, really saying social groups that don't talk to each other, like that's sort of how we're defining it. And that's just really important because again, you'll get different ideas, you'll get different perspectives. And there's lots of research showing how that relates to things like even patent generation within companies. And then over longer terms, just more innovative firms tend to have a lot more teams that have higher centrality scores and things like that. So there's a lot of ways to think about that. Now, the important things is that the extremes of each of these ends tend to be pretty bad. And so this is like things that we're pretty good about automatically flagging without context are these extremes, right? Like if you're at one end of the extreme on the, let's say, exploration or diversity end, that means that you're spending all your time talking to people who never talk to each other, which again, could be okay in very isolated circumstances, but most of the time that's pretty bad. Similarly, if you never talk to other teams, like literally never, that's almost always pretty bad. And so it's always this gray area. And I think that's what's exciting and really interesting about is companies really build these behaviors or behavioral metrics into their KPIs and eventually report that out to even investors. It's 
really dialing this in because your cohesion, say, could be at, let's say, 50%. But today, most companies would have a hard time saying what it should be. Should it be 60%? Should it be 40%? Like Those are very different. But it's, again, I go back to the marketing example because I think it's just very appropriate. It's a great comparison. If you ask people in the year 1998 what a good click-through rate was, they'd have no idea. Now, and obviously today, click-through rate, depending on the type of site you have, what you're doing, it varies. What is a good click-through rate? It really does differ. If you're a B2B SaaS company, that's very different than what it should be for a Facebook ad. But now people have a set, they know what this means and they know for their application, what is good. And I think we're still at the beginning of that when it comes to people analytics, when it comes to workplace analytics. It really is that I think these technologies right now are very good at flagging these real extremes that like, it doesn't matter what you do, they're bad. But the companies, it's actually not really a technology problem at this point. It's that companies need to get more sophisticated around understanding these metrics and understanding where do you want different parts of the organization? Because that's where it starts to get much more interesting that I do an intervention and I move this up by 10%. I can tell you for that specific team, that's a good thing. And I think that's what we'll move over the next decade. Well, I understand why you want to look at every company individually, but really, if we want to to generate some patterns, we really want lots of data. You know, I can imagine just having a machine learning algorithm that would look at hundreds of different software development projects and deployments, and some would be have bugs and some wouldn't have bugs, and you'd be able to spot the network patterns that were predictive of some kind of bug or defect downstream, and others that you could look at and go, yeah, okay, this, this is probably going to have a good result, right? If you aggregate enough data... I mean, maybe there are some companies that are large enough, like Google, that have enough internal data on, say, software development teams that they can, they can do it internally. But ideally, you'd want to kind of aggregate as much as possible, right? So, yeah, this is what we've been working on at Humanize. I mean, to be fair, I think almost all of our customers are global Fortune 1000 companies. So a lot of them, we can do this internally. To your point, as we build up more and more data from many, many companies around, say, software developer teams or other types of roles or teams, then you can start to say things more generally. From our internal analysis, we don't feel like we have enough to do that about lots of roles. So we try to be very, very cautious. Like, again, we want to see very stable distributions of these things before we say, all right, I can give you a metric on software development teams. I can show you where they sit. But the other thing that I would say is that I always think benchmarks are a good starting point. And maybe your point If you're a small business, if you're a startup, if you're even a medium-sized business, you'll probably never have enough internal data to provide your own like internal benchmarks. Like this is the best software development team. Well, you might only have one if you're a small organization. So you can't do that. Yeah, like I have one laptop. I want someone else to tell me when it's about to crash. Exactly. So I think as this goes down to that level, I think, yeah, you have to rely on these bigger data sources. I think for a lot of these reasons, that's why we focused on large organizations because we can even do that within a single organization. But I think it is going to be very interesting as these become metrics that I think public companies will have to report out. And we don't have to get too far into this, but I do think that eventually that's where this gets is that you have all these companies making claims about, hey, we're cross-functionally integrated. You're just making things up, right? You'll eventually have to prove it. And I think that these sort of metrics, as they get more sophisticated, as they get, or not even sophisticated, as they get more widely deployed, what that means is that you can then say, here's where you sit. Maybe you have an explanation for why your teams are lower on this metric strategically. Yeah, our software development teams are lower on cohesion than the vast majority of companies, but that's because we're actually focused on innovation. And that's a reasonable explanation and people can have discussions about that. But I think you'll need to know that internally, that that's where you where you actually sit and whether that makes sense with your strategy. But then also that setting those as KPIs, that what we want, we want to be more innovative. So I'm going to ratchet down cohesion and I'm going to try to push up this other stuff. But that maybe next quarter that changes. And I think that 
in the past, you just couldn't react that quickly. But that what these network analytics enable you to do is really see that and gut check those assumptions around what you want to do and, and whether they're working or not. So you could presumably have a dashboard and then you'd say, oh, wow, this group's kind of losing cohesion over here. These guys are going to start quitting if I don't do something or there's going to be some problems. It doesn't really help to have a, a metric or a measure if you don't have the ability to then adjust the dials. So what kinds of dials and, and nudges would a manager have that they could use to dial up cohesion or, or dial up diversity? I think in the physical environment, it may be a little harder because you may have to rearrange some chairs and redesign the office space and so forth. But in the online world, maybe it's easier. You can kind of slow down the connectivity <laughs> or speed it up. Theoretically easier. And I actually have a beef with you on that. So I don't think a lot of the tools to change these networks are necessarily that revolutionary. I think eventually we could do some very clever, interesting things. But I think we're, again, it's not technological. It's more culturally. I just don't think we're close to being there. In the book, you mentioned this idea of like having little walls between your cubicles kind of go up or down. That's right. I do mention that in the book. I don't know if you saw what Google is putting into their offices as they move people back in. Did you see this? They've got inflatable walls. 11 years old, right? You know, I should have patented that, I guess. Anyway, just to be clear, I actually think that's an incredibly powerful tool. Imagine you programmatically control that and say, I actually inflate some walls because I want people to have more focused time. It doesn't prevent people from talking to each other, but it just will encourage them to focus more. So I think things like that are great, and I'm a huge fan of them. But I do think that we don't have to get that fancy to actually make a really big impact. I mean, just change where people sit. It dramatically changes how people collaborate. I actually would argue it's harder to do that in a digital space because... Again, if I sit you next to somebody, you will communicate more with them by a lot. In the digital world, there's not a good equivalent of that. And there's some interesting systems like Gather, if you've seen that, that sort of looks like a, an old role-playing game, basically, where you can physically get people close to people in a virtual... Well, you move your character, your avatar, to get close to people in a virtual space and you can talk. So there are things like that, but that you need really widespread, continuous adoption of those tools to be useful. And so there are things I've seen apps like Donut on Slack that randomly pair up people. There are things that can be done, but I'd argue that it's, again, harder in that digital space to influence things. It's not that you can't. Again, similar management tools, if, if I do reorg, it changes things. If I schedule regular check-ins, it changes things. Of course, if I want to silo off teams, I could use different communication tools in different teams, and that will do that. Or I could do the opposite to try to bring teams together. I just think that in the physical workplace, we have so many more tools at our disposal. Again, if I put free donuts in the break room, I will get more exploration. I'm not even kidding. Like that will do it. It will dramatically increase exploration. That's really easy to do. And that's very, very hard to do in a digital space. There are, of course, ways you can randomly pair up people. But what we've seen over the pandemic is that they have very short-term effects, right? You see like Virtual happy hours, for example. When we've seen companies implement things like this, there's typically an immediate bump in some metric that they're trying to impact. And then over the course of four to six weeks, it basically disappears. It's not novel anymore. You get bored of it. So it does have an effect, but it means that to have the same effect as free donuts in the conference room, you have to constantly reinvent these sort of events. So you can do it. But like what you're essentially paying for in terms of that office space is the ability to not have to worry as much about stuff like that and to have a much easier dials to go into. I do think virtual environments can eventually and probably will eventually get there. I just think that what at least what we've seen during the pandemic is that we're not there, at least in terms of how people by default use tools today. It doesn't enable the same influences that we can easily do in the real world. 
Yeah, we had uh, free cookies for a couple months at Berkeley, but the budget ran out. And so the faculty lounge, you know, the usage went down considerably after the uh, free cookies went away. But you talk also about the importance of physical interaction and physical communication, not just at the water cooler. And there are these studies that you reference about speed dating and about how there are all these cues that we experience when we're interacting with each other in a face-to-face way. And part of what you were trying to do at, at Humanize was capture this and measure this and see how it impacts things. Are these physical cues things that are completely devoid? Are they completely missing in, in our online communications? How can we replicate these kinds of physical cues and signals? It's challenging. So like at Humanize, we've even shifted because as we got to bigger and bigger scales, we really just use existing sensors and offices. So really a lot of what we're looking at at very large scales right now are just proximity patterns between people, which we can eventually use to estimate how much I communicated with you or how much team A communicated with team B, I should say, over this month. And we can do that very well. But it doesn't get to your point at some of the earlier work we've done around the fact that a change in my facial expression, or if I lean in, that impacts my relationship with you. And we as humans, of course, evolved for literally millions of years to interact face-to-face. We're quite good at it. We're extremely good at it. Well, in a way, it should be easier to measure. I mean, if I, if I move forward or backward from the camera, that should be relatively easy to track in video. So it's easy to measure, but here's what I would say. So it's easy to measure that, but in terms of my human interpretation of your actions through something like Zoom is mediated by the fact that this is non-natural in that there are delays, just physics, physics happens, right? So when we're in person, it's the physics of light. It's so fast that there's no delay, right? There's no delay. I lean in, you lean in with some short delay, but your brain is automatically doing something in reaction to how I'm talking. Whereas when we're doing this online, there is anywhere from a 20 millisecond, if you've got really good connection to closer to 500 milliseconds. And that's just in terms of the, the signal. There is in terms of the turn-taking behaviors you normally have that me trying to jump in, I mean, we've all noticed this. It's much harder to jump into a conversation with someone when you're talking over Zoom or over Skype or something because of that delay. You can't naturally insert your voice into there. And that radically changes the dynamics. And so to your point, it is still easy to measure those. And that's something that we've done at least at a metadata level, but the meaning is so different. And I think this is why there's, there've been a lot of great studies showing that, again, these interactions are still not as effective as they are in person. I do think there are possibly some technological solutions to it. There's some very interesting work in particular by Jeremy Balenson out of Stanford, looking at virtual reality and looking at, for example, doing things like just automatically having my avatar mirror your avatar that'll make you love me. There are, of course, ethical issues with this. Like I could blend your face into my virtual avatar's face. It'll still look like me. You won't notice it, but you'll love me. That's interesting. I do think there are solutions like that that could be effective that, of course, raise ethical questions, but that you need widespread adoption for those. There are some interesting startups like Spatial doing work in trying to create work environments in virtual reality, for example, but that to really be effective, you need 100% uptake continuously on these things. The data would suggest we're still very, very far from that. And that it's interesting that if this were as easy to build a, for example, remote company as to build one in person, I really get frustrated by people like, oh, well, there's this one company that's been remote since day one and they're, they're doing well. And this is survivorship bias, right? It's like, you don't see the floor littered with everybody who failed. It doesn't mean it's impossible to do this remotely. It is absolutely possible. The question is, these are all probabilities. It's all about luck and just odds. And so 
if you're making a bet and you're saying, okay, can we have as effective a conversation virtually as we do in person for, let's say, brainstorming? There's some things where you can make an argument that it's true. But for, let's say, more complex discussions or for building a strong relationship, you can't say it's impossible because it is possible. But if I'm making a bet, if you're forcing me to put money down, I'm saying, oh, absolutely. There's less of a chance for this to be a good relationship. And that's how I think we have to think about people analytics more broadly. Like these aren't guarantees. None of these things are guarantees. They are probabilities. And I think that this does run counter to how a lot of people have made management decisions in the past, which is give me the right answer. Where the truth is, there are better hypotheses, but that they're still a guess. And even if something is 90%, you're 90% sure it's going to work. There's that 10% chance it doesn't work. And that doesn't mean that your hypothesis is wrong. It means it just doesn't work in this context, which is okay. Move on. The power of these analytics is that they tell you when it's wrong. You don't have to keep doing the same wrong thing for five years and being like, oh, this reorg didn't work after five years. You can say, no, this didn't work after a couple months. And that being 10 times faster is extremely valuable. It's much better than being right. And I think when it comes to virtual interaction as well, of course, it could work for a particular team or your company, but the data can tell you that. I don't need to guess, is this working for everybody or can this team, they use some special tool, are they able to build better relationships? Look at the data. And if it says yes, then that's great. Go with it and then try it into other teams. And if it works, that's great. Uh, But if it doesn't, then you can stop doing that and you don't have to bet the farm on doing things in a certain way because we've seen that people can very quickly, dramatically change how they work on a dime, right? And so I don't think companies have to treat their employees as as children in terms of like, I've got to handhold you through a six month change management process to get you onto some new video conferencing software. No, no, no. You can roll it out. People will adapt. But what you can do is if it doesn't work, you also don't have have a six month offboarding process. You can, in the span of a little bit of time, say, we're going to try something else. But that needs data, needs analytics to make that real. So one of the articles that I have my students read in my workplace class is about using infectious disease models to model the transmission of ideas and, and information. And one of the insights there is that lots and lots of short encounters can oftentimes lead to a greater diffusion of ideas than much longer and intense encounters. And of course, you wrote about actual disease transmission in this book eight years ago. And you made that point. And so maybe you can talk a bit about how prophetic that was and the implications of it. But we think about these Zoom meetings, very few people schedule three-minute Zoom meetings. All of our Zoom meetings are half hour or, or an hour. We don't have a meeting from 6 to 6.03 and three, 6.03 to 6.06. So we've basically eliminated all of those short meetings. What is the impact of that on the diffusion of ideas within organizations? So I'll take this in a couple parts. I obviously, when was first working with some epidemiologists out of the Harvard School of Public Health, we thought it was obviously this hole in the literature that really very few people had actually looked at how do diseases spread at work, despite the fact that that being where a lot of people spend the majority of their waking hours. And you spend a lot of time in Japan, and Japan has a very different approach to disease in the workplace. Well, this is right. So really, actually, the reason I became interested in this is, so I spent a lot of time in Japan, going back to undergrad, actually modern Japanese, lived there a number of times. And one time I was working at a research lab of a large Japanese company, and it was a secure facility. So like you couldn't bring your work out with you. But Japan has a very different approach to disease than we do in the US, where they tend to prioritize public health 
over things like productivity. Although actually I would say that their recent challenges with COVID-19 would indicate that maybe that's changed for them. But at least back when I was working there at this point, I guess 13 years ago or so, that was the case. But I realized, of course, that's just cultural. I mean, essentially, I was working in this lab and one day I got really sick. I was at work. I started to feel really sick. I was sweating. You definitely had a fever. But the next day I had to give a presentation to the head of the lab about the work that I've been doing. But again, you couldn't bring your work home with you, right? Because again, it was secure. So I couldn't email something back home and finish it there. I was just working, try to finish up this document. I actually went to my coworker and I was like, listen, I'm feeling really bad. I actually might need you to give this presentation tomorrow because I don't know if I'm going to be able to come in. And he looked at me and he said, no, you've actually got to go home right now. I'm like, well, I got to finish the document and then I'll go home. And it's like, no, you actually have to leave. And they forced me to go home. The next day I tried to come in really early just to, to finish it up and they wouldn't let me in the building. And that was just fascinating to me because... You know, imagine you're in the U.S. Actually, I wonder if the pandemic has changed this, but pre-pandemic, in the U.S. at least, if you were sick and you said, tell your boss, like, okay, I know we got this big presentation tomorrow, but I'm sick, so I'll see you in a couple of days. They'd be like, no, 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 you're fired, right? There's no data behind. Those are just the natural reactions, both in Japan and the U.S. Yeah, I realized that I've, in 30 years or so of teaching, I've never missed a single day. I remember I dragged myself into teach no matter what I felt like. Hopefully in the future, you wear a mask <laughs> if you do that. I was trying to normalize that in my company, at least before the pandemic. And now I think a pandemic did that for me. Because clearly from a public health perspective, to be clear, and so to your point, it's better to go home. Fewer people will get infected. But that a lot of our work has showed that when you are home, it changes the networks, not just of you, but of all your coworkers. And so we wanted to look at this. What is the impact of if I... So we had a data set, we didn't infect people with diseases, but we said, well, what if we simulated people going home, these other things? And as you sort of mentioned... What we saw was, that was surprising was that it looked like these really short interactions were, would be responsible in the simulated environment for the vast majority of disease spread, such that if you remove them, you could dramatically decrease the size of an epidemic. What's interesting about that is our intervention strategy around the current pandemic, we did contact tracing and we believed that the longer exposures were to be avoided and shorter exposures were more okay. And so that, that's sort of the opposite of the result. I do want to say we were simulating H1N1 and my co-authors had very good transmission probabilities on H1N1. So I have not rerun the numbers with COVID-19. So I do not know what it was like for that. But I do think the general idea is probably relevant, especially given what we know now about indoor transmission. It probably makes a lot of sense that like just me and you talking for an hour is maybe not as big of an issue as all the other people that I'm with a little bit of time, but we're still in the same general vicinity. Regardless, this idea that, you know, if I get locked in a room with you for a couple hours, there's a decent chance that I can infect you with something. But that we're then not going out, I'm not going out and infecting other people during that time, right? Versus if I talk to a whole bunch of people for short periods of time, let's say over that three-hour period, let's say I talk to 30 people for six minutes each, there's a low chance that I infect any single person, but that I can infect a whole lot more people who then go out and infect a lot more people the following day and all these things. And that that effect appears to dominate in these office environments. So again, it of course suggests all sorts of other interventions that might seem counterintuitive around changing where you sit, not so you sit near people you do know, sitting near people you don't know, because you're less likely to have chit chat with these people you don't know, but you might have longer conversations. Similarly, actually having more meetings, maybe not a bad idea. And especially today, I could definitely make that argument if we might as well do our meetings over a laptop anyway, because we have some people who are remote, then if I'm in the office, pack on the meetings, because that's actually not probably the high risk thing. Now, again, I will say, I would very much want to rerun this 
with COVID data before making those pronouncements about the current pandemic. But at least with H1N1, I feel very, very confident about that. But I think this general approach during the current pandemic, as well as any future pandemic, it really should be data-driven and not about what, what feels good. It's just how do people interact in offices today? And then given the properties of a disease, how does that interact with those things? And I think with, with COVID-19, because it's airborne transmitted through airborne means, that really does mean that looking at proximity patterns within offices is an extremely good way to understand how it's likely to spread and also yields really disturbing conclusions around things like two meters not being nearly enough indoors <laughs> between people, but that, you know, that's an uncomfortable truth. Anyway, there's all sorts of things like that. But yeah, it's certainly been quite unfortunate that that research became relevant again. But I do think that there is now, of course, a greater understanding of the importance of these kind of physical dynamics when it comes to understanding physical health. And of course, the corollary with that is this gives us an awful lot of data about performance, which is, of course, it's much less important than protecting health, but that that is something that, again, eventually will become more important as we get through the pandemic. So we talked about the trade-offs between diverse networks and these coherent networks. We talked about how maybe you could adjust the dial, but what about having people in different roles? Maybe part of your job description in the future would be your job is to cultivate a diverse network in the organization. Your job is to cultivate a coherent network. Potentially, your job is to be the generalist that stitches together all of these silos, and, and your job is to double down in, inside the silo. You had some words to say about the role of specialists and generalists, and in particular, you argued that when it comes to performance evaluation, we're much better at measuring the incremental impact of the specialists and these generalists or these floaters or these connectors. We don't really know how to measure their impact on performance because most of that performance shows up in the P&L of the other individuals in the organization. Yeah. And that's why I really think that we ultimately, in most organizations, we care about the group output. And so I think for a lot of things, looking at group, division, company level output is, is much more indicative of what behaviors matter than just how many reports do you bang out. Again, that in the past has been easier to measure, but now there frankly is no excuse to do that work to connect these lower level collaboration behaviors to these higher level outcomes. Again, it takes time. It could take a year for that to turn into outcomes, but if you're going to be around for a year, you can draw that connection and then you can systematize that. We do have an increase in people who have these kind of roles, but they're not explicitly talked about in network terms, which I think will change. Think about Scrum Master being a much more common thing today. Fundamentally, what their job is, is to increase cohesion within teams, if you think about it. For those who are familiar with Scrum, I mean, essentially, you're gathering everyone together to meet every day. You're trying to get everyone to talk to everyone else in these meetings. Like, that's what you're doing. Like, that is your job. Similarly, you can think about the roles of managers in a lot of cases, and this is where it gets interesting. So in some cases, the role of manager is to focus more internally within teams. In other cases, it's to really connect them, connect everyone on the team with other parts of the organization. And I think those are conflated in a lot of cases because those are very different types of roles. The role of helping mentor and manage the work within a team is a very different skill set then how do we connect to the broader mission of the organization? How do we make sure other stakeholders understand what's going on? And that I don't think it helps anyone to say, like, you have to be good at both of those things. So you could argue you could sort of unpack that role into different types of work. And I do think that as there is this increasing adoption of behavioral analytics within organizations, it'll help make those distinctions a lot more clear that, hey, actually, these are distinct skill sets. Listen, if they're concentrated within a single individual, that's great. But that a lot of times they're not. I mean, it was interesting 
one of our customers, which is a global Fortune 500 pharmaceutical company, they have these 360 valuations they give to folks to evaluate like how, what high are they high potential and things like that. But you're rated again, not just by your managers, you're also rated by people on your team if you are a manager. So you could look at it in different ways. You could look at, okay, who is rated highly by their teams? You could look at who is rated highly by people above them in the hierarchy. And you could look at who is rated highly by both. And there was this real difference in terms of those three different groups had very different behaviors in that people who are rated highly by their teams spent more time with their teams, which is not shocking. People who are rated highly by their managers had much more diverse entrepreneurial networks, which you would also expect. Now, people who were rated highly by both, it was a much smaller number, but that they sort of mediated these things. They actually were somewhat able to do both. But the key thing that differentiated them, because again, the time commitments on those folks, normally you'd say, how could you possibly do both of those things? What they did much better than everybody else was essentially batch their time. That what you saw was that they basically went back to back on meetings for a lot of the day, but then they had really big chunks of unscheduled time, which is where you can do more entrepreneurial things. But again, if you imagine I have meeting 15 minutes, meeting 15 minutes, it's going to be a lot harder for me to just run into people and have a quick chat with you. And so there are things like that you could take away. But again, it's great to have those people who rate it highly by both. That's great. But there was a huge number of people in these other two, two camps. And, you know, it does, of course, get to an economic question of like, can you afford to have both on a team? But I think it's something worth considering and thinking about how those things function. And I think in the past, some companies have used like a matrix organization, that sort of methodology as a way to do that. It's unclear to me. I actually feel like that probably doesn't work in a lot of cases because actually the formal org chart only predicts about 20% of interaction. However, there are different cases. It could work in some cases, but I do think that thinking much more about decisions like that as how do I design these roles to accomplish behavioral goals. It's a new way of thinking about work, but I think that will become increasingly popular over time as we make more and more products and services that are increasingly knowledge-driven that don't lend themselves to easy-to-measure KPIs. So in, in business, we talk a lot about the physiology of the organization and the psychology of the organization. We talk about the nervous system and talk about the digestive system. In your book, you use this wonderful metaphor where you say that information in a company is like water and IT is kind of like the pipes and, and the pumps that help facilitate the flow of information. I love this metaphor because when you talk to most CIOs, they don't think of themselves as really being in charge of information flows. They think of themselves in charge of pipes, but they don't actually think in terms of where does the water need to go and how does the water need to flow and so forth. And you've talked about how HR has kind of a limited scope in many cases in terms of how they think of their responsibilities. How does IT need to rethink of itself in an organization that is really focused on facilitating optimal information flows? In an ideal world, of course, you'd have IT, HR, real estate, really all these supporting functions, but ideally be together, like actually a single function. And maybe you separate out the administrative parts of those functions from the strategic parts. But for at least the strategic decisions, I do think those all need to be made in concert. But and it gets to your point that when you come to IT, if we focus on them specifically, imagine the engineering organization uses Slack, but that the sales folks use Salesforce and the chat within Salesforce to communicate. They will never talk to each other, never, because they use different systems. It just becomes basically impossible for them to communicate. Now, you might just look at that through the view of, I provided them a tool that they will be more effective at their individual job, and that is technically correct. But of course, what you've done, to you know, use the analogy, is you've segmented these pipes, like they are in two different water systems, and they're not connected at all. And 
that needs to be considered. You might have a tool that a particular part of the organization wants to use that could be very well be more effective for the work that they want to do. The question you have to be able to answer is, will that change the structure of communication such that it actually negates the gain that they will receive from that? And that is traditionally a hard question to answer. But again, today it is not a hard question to answer. Today, if you could test out that system, right? And even the way the Slack grows, a lot of these systems grow in particular, it's sort of organically, like a particular team adopts it. And so you could see, hey, for the teams that have used Slack, do they get less connected to other parts of the organization? If the answer is no, then hey, you know what? It's not an issue. Let's, let's go to town with it. Or let's roll it out broadly across the whole company. If the answer is yes, then you better be really targeted about that. Even if people really like it, you have to be willing to take that away because it actually impedes the overall organization. But again, these are things that individuals don't have great perspective on because if you're, say, in engineering, you might barely communicate with sales even in if you're on the same platform. It could be that you only would communicate once every two weeks. That being gone, you won't feel that at all, but that could significantly change how information flows in the organization and then consequently the outcomes you care about. These shouldn't be done by fiat. It's not like someone should analyze these numbers in the back room and say, all right, we're going to make this decision. You do need to communicate this. I do think the difference between marketing analytics and between workplace of people analytics, part of it is you're, you're actually dealing with, with whole people. When it comes to marketing, a lot of times you're actually dealing with computer systems and then I'm changing the layout of a web page slightly based on data. And it doesn't really matter because you're not, I'm not changing how a person shops in the real world. It's, it's a very different analogy. Whereas changing like how you communicate with your coworkers, that is a, is a much bigger change. It's not that you can't change it more quickly, but just there is a different layer there. In addition, of course, to the power differential, which I didn't bring up before, but I do really want to bring this up, that I think the other big difference is that when it comes to, say, some tech company looking at your purchase data, ultimately, they don't control your life. Like, could you stop using one of these big tech platforms? It might be inconvenient, but you could do it. If your boss says, give me this data, you're fired. It's a very, very different dynamic. They control your livelihood. And so I do think that the responsibility on companies using these technologies and providing these technologies like Humanize, like what we do, I think it needs to be that much higher. I think that is why it's been nice to see, you might've seen those EU AI um, draft regulations that just came out a few weeks ago now. Those are really interesting. And I think a necessary step for the industry to move forward, because I do think there's a lot of uncertainty around what we should do and shouldn't do with this kind of data, but that I do think that moving forward, regulation like this will help set those guardrails and also give, I think, companies confidence to use these technologies more because they're not going to be worried about doing the wrong thing as much as now where it's just the Wild West. Yeah, certainly. I think when scientific management first came about, the really concern on the part of the workforce was that this was really designed to make them work harder and to get more value out of them, but in a way that wasn't necessarily mutually beneficial. And there's probably, I think, quite a bit of suspicion to this day around supervision of work and creating more visibility around work. But I love your idea of thinking of real estate as an extension of IT, thinking of facilities as an extension of IT. In my workplace class, I have a lot of architects and furniture designers and so forth come in and talk to the students, in part because I share your your belief that the size of the cubicle and the size of the table and the location of the offices can radically influence information flow. So facilities people they're a branch of IT. It's not simply about making sure that the connectivity is there and the Wi-Fi is working and the computers, but also thinking about the configuration of the space because it shapes information flows. 
that's why I really do think that there has to be a separation between administrative functions, which you need for real estate. Like you need someone to make sure the HVAC system's working. But that's very different from what building should we be in? What city should we be in? What should the layout of the office be? Like they're completely different skill sets and questions. And something for IT, make sure that the email works is very different than what communication tools should we use? This is where it gets really frustrating for me when you see companies, I mean, especially today, making workplace strategy decisions without having a team composed of people from IT and real estate at a minimum, in addition to folks like HR and operations, all these things. Because clearly, we're going to have more of a hybrid model across every single company in the world. Just definitely like it's going to happen. So the workplace much more strongly has to complement whatever communication tools you use. But like, we know for a fact that in the vast majority of companies, those decisions are still being made separately. Despite the fact that, again, if I put you, let's say, instead of using email, I turn off all internal emails and we can only use Slack. You could do that. This is a strategic choice. Well, if we do that, that's going to change how people collaborate. Well, how do we want that to be complemented in the physical space? Again, there's all sorts of questions that need to be considered in concert. And I do think we'll eventually get there. There are a small number of companies that have done this that have like a chief people officer that actually sits on top. I have seen there's a couple of companies where it sits on top of real estate, IT, and HR, a very small number of companies. But I, I do fundamentally believe you probably need an organizational structure like that. You need someone who has authority to make decisions around all these things. If I have to go beg your department to make a change to the communication tools, you're going to have different incentives than me. It's ultimately going to be very difficult for me to do that. But if it's all unified, I think that's going to be a lot more effective. But I think we're still, you know, there's this legacy of HR is a purely administrative function. There's no data behind it, no analytics. Same with real estate, frankly, right? Like it's become more data driven, but it's still about like rents, right? It's like, okay, we want to optimize our rent spend. Again, there's good reasons for that, right? It's not like it's bad. Similar with IT. We now have moved to a strategic phase of a lot of these tools. And I think more companies now appreciate that. But I think we're still lagging very far behind on the structure and the budgets of these divisions, because you also, of course, need the budget to then do things. And if you're in HR and I want to change the workplace design, but you give me a budget of $10 million a year for a 100,000 person company, well, what can you do? I could buy everyone one cookie. And there you go, right? To your point, we're going to run out of cookies in the faculty lounge. So that, that doesn't make much sense either. Ben, thank you so much for joining me. People Analytics, the book is, is still available. It's still an awesome book. Any plans on a second edition or a new book on the horizon? Just some new stuff coming. Writing a book is a painful process, so getting back into it. But uh, I'm going to be cagey about it. There is some new stuff. I will leave folks in suspense, but yeah, there is some new stuff coming. Really appreciate you joining. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www dot unsiloedpodcast dot com